Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Welcome back to the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Today I'm with Karen van Klusen, Secretary General of Polis, a network of European cities and regions on urban mobility innovation. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to um, speak to you again today. We last met at the Wunder Mobility Summit where you were also on stage and helping to give the big picture of new mobility. Can you give us a bit of an intro to maybe yourself and your work? Polis is around for 30 years now working with European cities on these questions of urban mobility innovation. So I think a lot of the topics that are maybe hot at the moment or in the last two years, you've gone through some cycles before. So talking a lot about the history will hopefully also set, shed some light on the future. What did you do in the past and who is Polis? Yeah, so Polis has been around for 30 years, uh, since 1989, so even more than 30 years. I wasn't there at the very start, I have to admit. I was, I've okay. been at Polis since 2004, which is already uh, quite a long time as well, and, and in this position since 2014. Before that, I was work, working for Eurocities, and before that, I was working for a Belgian Center for Mobility Management. So I've been in the sector since 1998 myself. Polis is a, a European network of cities and regions, as you said, focusing on urban mobility, sustainable urban mobility with the innovation angle. So how can innovation help our cities and regions to improve their mobility and to make it more sustainable? That's really at the core of our activities. So we cover everything and anything that you can think of that is related to, um, to mobility issues in uh, the cities of today and tomorrow. Has Polis' mission already been about innovation for sustainable mobility 30 years ago, or is that kind of an updated, newer claim more recently? In, the innovation angle was there from the very first day. We actually started as a European project originally, and then we became an association. And the first focus was very specifically on ITS, on intelligent transport systems, and how they can help cities make their mobility better, more efficient and sustainable. And then gradually the network expanded its scope to cover everything in the field of sustainable urban mobility. But the innovation angle has been there from day one. What do you think is really maybe different in the last 10 years in this conversation with cities on how to innovate? Are there any notable changes in the last few years compared to 10 years ago in this discussion? When it comes to innovation in particular, I think what has really changed tremendously is that there have been many innovations and disruptions coming our way and being deployed in our city streets. That means that what used to be originally the preserve of the public sector to provide mobility services has now also increasingly become an arena where private sector players are, are stepping in. And I wouldn't say it has led to an identity crisis, but it kind of has begged the question what the role is of the city in the mobility ecosystem of, of tomorrow. And uh, it's clear that, that cities are increasingly becoming orchestrators, let's say, of everything that is happening within their territories uh, when it comes to these innovations being deployed. And I think that's something that's really accelerated over, over the past 10 years, specifically when we talk about innovation. So you think that if you take a long-term view, it sounds like you see cities coming from where they are clearly in charge of public transportation and for, for better or worse. And now what's different now in the last few years is that 
more private players are entering the space. And so there's even said identity crisis, but this question, how do we use this now? What role do we play now going mm -hmm. forward? And you see more and more kind of the role of an orchestrator emerging. Is that really like universally true for most these or do they fall into different groups where maybe some would say, great, let's, let's leverage this, let's play a role as an orchestrator. And then maybe others would also say, well, this is maybe my domain. Maybe I should be, for example, an operator of these kind of services rather than just orchestrate private ones. I'm not saying they are, they have less power or that, um, they used to be fully in charge and now they are no longer in charge. It's just a different way of dealing with things. Because also when we look at the private sector initiatives coming to our streets, I believe there is a very strong role for the public sector to play to make sure that these services are not going to undermine what cities are, are trying to do, but are going to support what cities are doing. And if they are not doing that, then maybe they, they shouldn't be allowed on our city streets. There are cities which are more innovative and open to innovation and to exploring these kind of public-private partnerships than others. But the ones that we are working with really have this innovation angle already and are very keen to explore in a very smart way how they can take this forward. Because for me, a smart city is not a city that jumps on every and any innovation that is passing by, but it's a city that thinks about the challenges it has and the goals it would like to reach, and then considers whether any of these technologies are actually going to help them in, in, in reaching those goals. So whether they are solutions to problems that cities are facing. And if that's not the case, then it might be the, not be the right innovation uh, for them. What do you see as the most urgent problems for cities in Europe that they are facing when it comes to their streets, to mobility? Is that mm -hmm. very universal again? Or do you also kind of separate them into groups? I think uh, the major challenges and problems that need to be addressed are very universal in nature. So when we look at urban mobility and the negative impact of the transport sector in, in general, we see that cities really need to shape their policies around those challenges. And then we're talking about air pollution, noise pollution, the global challenge of climate change, so the need to decarbonize the transport sector. We're talking about congestion and the need for a model shift away from the private car in cities. Road safety remains a major issue to address as well. And generally, quality of life that needs to be improved in our urban cores. And we can definitely say that this is something that the majority of the cities have in common and, and are trying to tackle in, in today's policies. What do you see as the development or product from the last years that already had the greatest impact on these topics that you mentioned? If there even is one, because maybe what's What gets a lot of attention doesn't necessarily already have a big impact in terms of its adoption. But is there something no. that you're already excited about that you think we have made a lot of progress? I personally don't believe in silver bullets or, or holy grails. So there's unfortunately not one miracle solution that is going to bring us the most beautiful, sustainable city of, of tomorrow. Actually, what I consider to be the most promising trend, and that's nothing that has to do with technology as such, is the way we have been rethinking urban space. If we look at the, the past 10 years and, and uh, how transportation and traffic have evolved, we've seen an ongoing increase of the private car in our cities on the one hand, but at the same time, an increasing realization that we can't continue this um, along this path and, and this way. So that basically 
uh, what we need to do is reallocate urban space in our city centers in, and beyond, actually, in a more fair way. And that's that we are facing the legacy of decades of car-centric urban planning and that we have to undo that if we want to keep our cities livable. And that, for me, is a major trend that we also saw has been accelerated during the COVID-19 pandemic, giving the streets back to the people, creating more space for active travel, for light mobility modes at the expense of the enormous space that is being occupied by the car, whether it's driving or whether it's standing still. I definitely agree that this seems to become a more front and center topic that we more consciously think about what's maybe the cost of allocating the space to parking for cars. And it could be a lot of other different uses. But what do you think is driving this adoption that we are seeing in a lot of cities? Is that more like a public will by the voters or is there a new business interest also behind it that is at play here? Why things, why space gets reallocated? I wouldn't say business interests. I would say the major challenges, the societal challenges that we discussed before. So congestion, road safety and so on, because safety and sustainability also go hand in hand. And if we then look at the, the climate transformation that we need to go through, the climate challenge that we need to address, it's clear that the big transport transformation needs to happen in cities. They hold many of the keys that are needed to, um, to decarbonize the transport sector and reallocating space in a way that we prioritize those modes which are the most sustainable and give them more space and deprioritize the ones that are the most polluting, the private car, is a very powerful tool that cities happen to be in charge of. Linking it to the business uh, dimension after all, what I think is really a false discourse is that pedestrianizing, for example, parts of the city center would be bad for business or for local retail. There's enough evidence in the meantime that actually the opposite is true. So it's also good for the city, for local commerce, if we divide our space and uh, reallocate our space in, in a different way. Then, of course, at the same time, we've also seen new light mobility modes coming to our streets. Micromobility has been booming over the past years. And I really hope that this is also going to be a way to call for even more space for the light mobility modes. Uh, so ac to accelerate and further expand that trend, what I really don't want to see happening and what I think is, is, is short-sighted and, and is not putting things into the right perspective is if light mobility modes would start fighting each other. E-scooters against cyclists, cyclists against pedestrians, you know, pedestrians against e-scooters. That's really not the way for, forward. We really should be joining forces across the, uh, the light mobility modes to claim the space that they deserve in urban course. And in that sense, I, I, I want to stress again that safety and sustainability go hand in hand. So if you make your city streets safer, the users of the infrastructure that you dedicate to light mobility, to active travel and to other similar modes, the users will come. So it really goes hand in hand and, and it's two sides of the, of the same coin. And it's in the interest of cities to promote those modes because they're the cleanest and will help them to address the different societal challenges uh, we mentioned before. Hmm. In addition to what you mentioned, reallocation of space, also with the advent of more active mobility solutions, what are other important trends that you think will dominate the discussion this mm -hmm. year and in the coming years in mobility? Our future needs to be multimodal and intermodal. We've been monomodal for way too long. And of course, it requires more of an effort from people to combine different transport modes rather than to go for one single mode. And for many people, apparently, 
that still is a private car, even though they get stuck in traffic jams, etc. So to me, it's not appealing, but to many people, it still is. So if we want to compete with that private car, we have to offer a range of options to citizens in a way that they can also be easily combined in as much a seamless way as, as possible. And uh, that's where multi multimodality and intermodality come in. And, and we have to reshape our cities in such a way that both the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure is, is facilitating that multimodality through interchanges where different modes come together, through multimodal mobility hubs on the neighborhood level where shared mobility services, for example, come together, but also through digital integration, not just the physical infrastructure, but also the digital infrastructure needs to be there. And then, of course, we're talking about mobility as a service. And it's a topic that has been very hot over the past years in Europe. And we're talking about a lot, we're, we're talking about it a lot, even though the actual deployment is not as advanced as we would like to see. At the same time, coming back to my previous point about the governance of innovation, I think it would be instrumental in going forward with mass that we have public sector oversight again. Because if mass would become a purely commercial story, then I don't think we can be sure that those modes which are the most sustainable will be prioritized in a mass environment, but rather the ones that generate the most revenue. And that's not necessarily the same. Walking and cycling are cheap and do not necessarily generate revenue, even though they're good for city business, as I mentioned. And so then you could end up with unwanted modal shifts, such as, for example, we already see happening in, in Google Maps today. If you're asking Google Maps for a walking route, they're trying to nudge you towards an e-scooter. That's not the kind of modal shift that our cities are looking for. Taking pedestrians onto an e-scooter is not bringing us any gain. And that's something that could be happening within a mass environment as well, if we don't have any kind of public governance or oversight to make sure that sustainable modes come first, that public transport and active travel are the backbones, and then we complement them with other modes that can fill the gaps. The definitely difference objectives between cities and the private sector, but then also how does the city get ahead of, in front of that? I think that it can often help and it's quite fair to also look at other examples, maybe even copy somebody. Do you have a concrete city in, in mind for this aspect, maybe in Europe that you think is already seeing some good results where they try to orchestrate and mm -hmm. um, maybe even nudge people towards their more, their more of their policy goals? What does that practically look like? Who's doing that already, if anybody? Yeah, we have a, a number of cities that are, are leading the way. And I think when we talk about nudging or when we talk about steering users and citizens into the right direction, we have to accept that we cannot do it with just incentives or with carrots. We will have to bring out the sticks as well, because it's only also by internalizing the external costs of car traffic to society, for example, that people will start to seriously reconsider other options and alternatives. We've made it way too cheap for people to use the car and we have not factored in actually how much it is really costing uh, society. And if we start doing that and we see that cities are increasingly doing that, then the alternatives will become more attractive. And then we're talking about all kinds of pricing schemes, access regulations, low emission zones, even zero emission zones, congestion charges, parking management, etc. And this is very important. And there you see that cities like London, Brussels, 
Paris are, are leading the way, Amsterdam as well. And then uh, on the other hand, we, we have the regulatory frameworks that need to be put in place to maximize these opportunities of the new mobility services and mitigate their negative externalities. And there we are currently going, because it's all relatively new and because it's such a dynamic environment, we're going through a period of trial and error, I would say, from a regulatory perspective. So we're trying out which regulatory approaches could work we're finding out that some of the approaches we introduced do not work either for the public sector or for the private sector or for both. And then we try something new. And that's something that we are really trying to facilitate with police to bring the public and the private sector together to have that conversation and to see how we can strike the right balance between allowing innovation to thrive, but also framing and regulating that innovation in such a way that it doesn't undermine what cities are trying to do with their urban mobility ecosystems. And I would say what Paris has been gradually doing throughout the past years when they were being flooded by micromobility is, is a good and inspiring example, while recognizing that they've also had to uh, adjust and readjust as they go forward. But I think that's uh, the right approach. So we, we're in one big sandbox, really, where we are trying out different uh, approaches to then ideally come to a consolidated framework that, that works best, even though it's going to be different across different cities, depending on the local context. I understand that you are working with a lot of cities across Europe, and so mm -hmm. um, you probably also don't want to um, maybe necessarily like single some of them out or be unfair to, by naming one and not, and, not, and not the other. But I, I think that Paris is often cited as an example, and then many cities and citizens might feel like, okay, we're not Paris. I mean, because yeah. they they are so big and they have a lot of, they're just way different from the majority of cities. Do you have also some more mid-sized city in mind that you think can be used as a good example mm -hmm. where they've been successful as an orchestrator? Yeah, actually, I'm very happy you bring that up because within Polis, we have what we call the SMC platform, small and medium-sized cities platform. Mm -hmm. And the aim of that platform is, on the one hand, to give them, you know, uh, an opportunity to talk to each other and learn from each other, but also to show to the outside world that you don't have to be big to be innovative. Because there's sometimes some frustration at their end as well that the private sector, the innovators always go to the big cities, the capital cities to try out their new services and innovations and that they overlook um, the, the much bigger group, actually, of small and medium-sized cities that we have across Europe. So there are interesting and very good examples indeed also within that group. And let me just name my hometown, uh, which is the city of Leuven here uh -huh. in, uh, in, in Belgium. And they won the European Capital of Innovation Award in 2020, which represented 1 million euros. So it's a big prize because they are very innovative in the way that they work with stakeholders, that they de smartly deploy technologies, etc. And specifically within um, the transport sector, they've been very inspirational in, in terms of deploying shared mobility hubs. That's something that is currently ongoing, where they bring different shared mobility modes together. Other examples are their ambitions and, and their clear, clear path towards climate neutrality, where they are engaging with the different types of stakeholders from citizens up to universities and industries to make sure that we're all in this together and that we create co-ownership and co-create uh, policies from, from day zero, basically. So they are definitely an inspiring example. They're also looking at mobility as a service and they're very concerned with making sure that the big transport transformation we have ahead of us is going to be a just transformation and transition which leaves nobody behind so that we also take this inclusion dimension 
into account. And they're, for example, using mobility as a service in, in the future as a way to co-fund certain trips from, for example, new mobility service providers, if those trips help them to promote inclusion, for example, because they're offered to people who usually couldn't afford those trips, or because it's trips that are offered in underserved areas where there is no good alternative for public transport or something like that. So that way also technology can serve uh, policy goals and enhance inclusion. That's very relevant and interesting, I think, and new in some ways, that basically the city who you described in the beginning used to think, okay, we are in charge of public transportation. Now, private mm -hmm. players are coming to the scene and then there's a phase of kind of regulating, maybe orchestrating, but then also leveraging to say, okay, I have a certain budget to provide maybe in operations term, you would say a certain service level or to reach certain parts of the population and, and make the city accessible for them. And then I, for example, co- sponsor certain mm -hmm. trips and for private companies there's maybe a business opportunity where there wasn't one before because exactly um, that wa wasn't worth maybe deploying cars here or having a business area here before that's yes. i mean i think that's really huge and it i mean will help mm -hmm. a lot to learn about these concrete examples i think not everybody has to reinvent the wheel on that no no and i think it's really the way forward that we need to invent new types of public private partnerships explore new business models but even consider subsidies if those services help cities reach their policy goals we have to recognize that mass transit can never meet the needs of everybody or all population groups and their uh, shared mobility can really provide added value but indeed as you mentioned sometimes the business case is simply not there And, and another untapped area, I think, not not so much a target group, but an area is suburbia, you know, suburban mm. areas where the level of car dependence is is way higher than in urban cores, where many alternatives are in place. Also, the new mobility services always go to the urban cores, whereas actually suburbia needs to be served as well. And if there we can find the right public-private partnership, which allows the private sector to to have a business case and be commercially viable and helps uh, the public sector to reach their policy goals in terms of offering a certain level of accessibility and services, then I think we really have a win-win for, for the future. So I would also encourage the mobility service operators out there to not just think about the city centers, but also about the smaller cities and about the suburban areas. Very interesting. So if I understand you correctly, you're basically advising cities to be very clear on their policy goals and then looking mm -hmm. at how to either orchestrate you know, or leverage those private providers also and collaborate with them. What are you advising them to keep in mind the cities when it comes to all the data that's being generated in these new mobility services? Is that something they also need to somehow control or influence or work with? Or what role do you think that plays for, for cities to have the, the best outcomes? Yeah, we think data is going to be instrumental in going forward and in, in, in creating this integrated ecosystem of public and privately uh, managed mobility services. We did a survey last year with Polis amongst operators as well as um, cities and regions to see where they stand right now when it comes to data sharing in, in the micromobility context in particular. And, and what we noticed is that, is that there is an incredible digital divide between the private sector, they have it in their DNA, naturally. These services are inherently digital in nature. And the public sector, where very often these skills and, and that capacity from a digital perspective is, is still missing 
Of course, we have the third parties, the data integrators and aggregators that are helping cities to deal with that data, but we still have a long way to go. And at the same time, it really could help them, you know, to understand what is happening on their streets, to monitor what is happening, but also to see what the actual impact is of those particular services on the overarching ecosystem in terms of model shift, etc. It could also help them to make sure that those services are used in those areas where they are where they are needed the most. It could inform policy and planning with regard to infrastructure improvements and, and further deployment of cycling infrastructure, for example. So there are many, many ways in which that data could help us move towards more evidence-based decision-making. But it's clear that we will have to assist our cities and build that uh, capacity and knowledge and skills within their public administrations. So we still have a way to go, but we strongly believe in that potential and also in finding as much as possible convergence in times in, in, in terms of the data specifications we're going to use and format so that it's not different across all cities, which is also a burden for the operators, but also in terms of clearly defining the use cases, not just collect all data because we know it's there, but really define what data we need for what purposes. It's also something that GDPR requires us to do. So that's an important discussion to have in conversation with the sector again. When cities are at the point that they have kind of clear policy goals and found a way to collaborate with the operators and maybe even begin to, let's say, like and leverage them, there's still, from my perspective, an open question of a broader acceptance of these new vehicle types and services and so on that, I mean, to be real, I think are still with early adopters right now. And we're hearing this from operators that they figure this in as a business risk and from cities that they get daily complaints from somewhere in the city, of course, if you're in a big, big one about maybe chaos created on streets or people complaining about vehicles on sidewalks and so on. So I think even if you're in theory, like we have it all figured out, but then there's still mm -hmm. a backlash possible where cities and some have done that actually end up getting, having to get rid of all of this again, because they don't want the number of complaints and the backlash. What other successful strategies on that, on making it acceptable to everyone who's also maybe not using it. What are you mm -hmm. seeing that the cities are maybe doing to make sure these options are around for longer? Yeah. The backlash is something that we don't just face when it comes to new mobility services or new types of, of modes like, like uh, e-scooters. It's, it's something that politicians have to deal with in general when they are introducing very necessary but not very popular measures that should help them to tackle uh, the societal challenges we were discussing before, and especially the, the six that I was mentioning. So that backlash is unavoidably something that brave and courageous political leaders will have to deal with. And if they're good ones, they will also push through and, and, under, and try to make citizens understand why they are doing what they are doing. And co-creation from day one and, and systematic public involvement will help in that respect. And then I also want to come back to what I mentioned earlier in terms of putting things into perspective. When we're talking about e-scooters cluttering public space, for example, it's true that there are issues we need to address that they shouldn't get in the way of pedestrians and things like that. But who is the biggest space polluter in our cities? It's not a tiny e-scooter. It's, it's the elephant in the room is a private car. So it's also a matter of educating people and, and making them understand that something that has become so self-evident for them is actually not self-evident. And that's the share that the car is using 
when it comes to urban space, which is very scarce and is very valuable for that reason. So we need to kind of make that mind switch as well. And and I think in that sense, uh, COVID-19 has been a great opportunity because we were introducing these pop-up bike lanes. We were reallocating space on a temporary basis, but it has helped to make people experience what an, a different city could look like in the future and, and to win hearts and minds of people. Sandboxing and experimentation is really important. And I, I strongly believe in, in, in piloting to then make things permanent and, and understand and making people understand what the benefit could be of these new modes. But we will always have to deal with pushback and, and backlash unavoidably. But these are things that could help mitigate it and could help create support. I definitely agree with you. I think that it's very almost yeah, funny in some ways, but it's also a problem how we even for myself, like begin to remind yourself how that's like the real hurdle in the street at the moment, but it's a quite natural performance that has really blended in. We can't imagine. And so it's like getting the imagination going, I think in some ways. And that's what happened during COVID, I think, where just so happened to be a lot emptier. And so then something else was put there on the parking mm -hmm. area, for example, and you only began to notice it once it was not there anymore. But once it's been there forever, you almost can't see it anymore. It's mm -hmm. very, very interesting how to crack this because I don't think it's, like it's a, it's a one-way street where we're definitely going down this road. We might not. I think also we talked before, is, the, is it just a public interest or also a business interest behind it? And I think that always yeah, plays a role. And of course, there is also a very strong standing business interest behind cars. People spend a lot more if they have a car on, on their car than they would maybe on the other side and shared mobility options. That's 500, 700 more euros per month mm -hmm. spending has leverage behind it. So I think what's, this is all um, kind of we're in the, in the middle of it and you've observed the space and contributed into the, the space and influenced people for a while. Do you see an acceleration of this or are we just kind of more on a linear curve? So is that true what some people are hoping that things are really nearing a tipping point and then cities will transform more in the next five years than they have in the last five? Or is that just wishful thinking and you, you see us more treading along as mm -hmm. we have oh, forever? I think we are at a crossroads right now. COVID has created a momentum. There have been opportunities, but there are also clearly are threats. And we see that car traffic has come back way faster than that public transport is recovering, for example. And uh, we have no choice but to rebuild that backbone, which is mass transit and public transport, because otherwise we're not going to be able to address the challenges ahead of us and, and reach the, um, the targets of the European Green Deal, for example. So we, we have to make sure that we rebuild public transport and integrating it better with shared mobility options, for example, will also make it more attractive and, and, and more appealing. So we kind of have to redefine what public transport actually is in, in that sense. So the emphasis should now really be on the green recovery and, and making our cities more resilient and capitalizing on the good things we have seen happening while really mitigating the bad things and avoiding that we end up in a situation that's even worse than before the pandemic from, from a transport perspective. And we see that those cities which have very good sustainable urban mobility plans in place are actually the ones that performed really well during the pandemic, but also have a higher chance of keeping those temporary measures and making them permanent. What they actually did was 
accelerate the rollout of a number of measures that they had planned for the years to come and deploy them in a shorter period of time than initially planned, uh, thanks and due to COVID. And that makes me hopeful because it also has shown that when they have to and when they are put under pressure, cities can be agile and can be fast as well. So it's something that we associate with the private sector, but it could also happen uh, on the side of the public sector. So I choose to be optimistic and I do believe that the next years are going to be instrumental in the transport transformation. And if it turns out that it that it's not the case, then we are in deep trouble, I would say, because uh, we have to act now. As you've laid out in the beginning, basically with a number of challenges from pollution to climate mm -hmm. and yeah. you've seen this agility now and you've worked with those stakeholders for a long, long time and it became very clear that you have also basically an expectation of those leaders when it comes to pushback that they need to also... Mm -hmm face and trying to facilitate this collaboration. So as an advisor to cities and an observer and contributor into the space for many years now, you talked about what you think the important topics are, but what do you also think is overrated at the moment that we spend a lot of time on and it maybe won't move the needle in the coming years? I think we've been talking a bit too much about the potential of automation for the urban environment. First of all, I think we need to distinguish between the urban environment and the inter-urban or highway environments. The urban environment is inherently complex. You know, there are so many unwritten rules in the way the different modes exchange and, 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 and interact with each other, which would make it very complicated for automated vehicles to, to understand and interpret. I think they would be stopping all the time because they don't know how to interpret everything that's going on around them, for example. So I think we have to be very careful in moving forward with automation that, that we anticipate today what is going to come tomorrow and that we today already start thinking about setting the rules of the game when it comes to automation and making sure that we, for example, only allow automated cars if they are shared and electrified and that we're not going to open our city doors to the private, to the automated car in the same way that we opened it to the private car a couple of decades ago and we're still dealing with the consequences of that. So I, I don't know how you look at the city of the future or how you envisage it. But for me, if it would be a city full of automated pods where you don't see anyone walking or cycling, I think it's a horrific idea. I mean, for me, the city of the future is, is a green city, is a city where you see children playing, where you see many people walking and cycling around. And I know this is not for everybody, of course, so we need to make sure there are good alternatives in place as well. And Framed automation could be part of that story, but don't expect that to be the big solution to solve the issues that we are facing in, in our cities. An automated car is still a car in terms of land usage and congestion and so on, and maybe worse if it yeah. drives itself back to avoid the parking fee and then comes again when yeah. it's needed. So Exactly. Yeah. And an electrified car is also still a car because... In the, in the climate discussion, also electrification seems to be the new holy grail. But what we first need is model shift away from the car, whether it's clean or not. But the ones that remain should be clean, obviously. It's very fascinating to talk to you from a very different angle than most of us who are a little bit on the ground running day-to-day -day operations. And we talk here mm -hmm. on the podcast to people who, for example, basically allocate vehicles every day or who are trying to build the better vehicle and so on. And you are looking at why things actually get deployed. And I think that is very fascinating because our space is so not just here's a rollout and if everybody like uses it, then then it's there. But it's a very 
political and intertwined space mm -hmm. and with an open outcome. I think it's not inevitable that it goes this way. Like you mentioned, like a backlash into more cars because that seems like the most, the easiest thing to do and maybe the safest way in a pandemic perspective. So very interesting. Thank you for drawing up this big picture with us and spending the time with us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you.